Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 17th. And once again, as all too often today, the news is dominated by technology. Um, the news yesterday that Uber agreed to classify British drivers as workers. Of course, they are workers. The question is what kind of work exists and indeed what kind of workers exist in a future of automated cars and sharing platforms like Uber. Um, Amazon now is expanding its virtual health program nationwide. It's increasingly hard to distinguish between Amazon, I think, and the federal government. Amazon seems richer, smarter, quicker, more powerful than the federal government. Um, more and more debate about the future of Section 230. Uh, we've had a number of discussions on the show about that, about fundamentally reforming the accountability of social media. Um, news that Tim Wu, one of the most articulate and critical uh, commentators on tech is uh, become Biden's main advisor on, 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 on big tech, which suggests that the Biden administration is going to be a lot more aggressive, certainly than the Obama administration. And even Congress is getting in the act. It's eyeing apparently antitrust changes. So all in all, it seems with big tech that We've created a monster that we can't control, and we are now finally coming to terms with, uh, with that monster, which uh, is appropriate because today I have the author of a new book called Monster on the show. Um, ben Pring is actually the co-author, but he's the only author on the show today, so I'm calling him the author. Um, and the book is called Monster, a tough love letter on taming the machines that rule our jobs, lives, and futures. So, um, Ben, you ask at the beginning of the book, have we created a monster with all this big tech? Have we? <laughs> kind of feels like that, doesn't it, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, those headlines you just put up uh, just shows that tech is kind of running through every big issue, every fault line, every big kind of rhetorical, philosophical question we're asking in societies all around the world now. And, um, you know, we start out from a position like many of your viewers, you yourself, you know, as people who've worked in tech for a long, long period of time, many years, the first line of the book is we love technology. So we're not coming to, to bury technology, we're coming to praise it, but only the kind of most myopic or Pollyannish would say that there isn't, you know, big issues in play here. There aren't big issues in play here. Only, only people with a very, very kind of uh, one-track vested interest would deny the fact that there are, uh, you know, parts of this story that seem to be, you know, that the train is going off the track a little bit. And uh, we're not calling out any one particular technology saying that's the monster. We're saying that the collision of, of a lot of these kind of technology trends of the last... 10, 15, 20 years, which, uh, you know, on their own, perhaps are quite benign. Um, in this collision, they're beginning to uh, produce more and more monstrous outcomes. And that's what we're trying to address in the book to frame for our, our audience, our readership, the people that we work it, uh, with, 
in big banks and big airlines and insurance companies in in uh, uh, policy circles in, in you know legislative circles we're trying to give them a way to frame this question and to think about well you know what do we do about this uh i love the subtitle of the book a tough love letter on taming the machines that rule our, li our jobs lives and future a tough love letter usually suggests we're going to give you one more chance. We're still in love with you, but you are, and, and, and uh, I use this word carefully, you fucked up. And unless you change your act, I'm not going to love you anymore. Is it a, is it a, is it a last letter from, from guys like you, Ben, to big tech, to, to, to the tech industry that they got to clean up their act? I think it's I think it's a tough love letter to us to us all really. I mean to to individuals, to corporations, to to politicians. I mean this is becoming a really really kind of um, existential moment. I think where we can see the power of technology. We can see that tech is is central to everything. We can see that software is eating the world. We can see that you know. Um, Mark, Mark yeah. Andreessen's famous remark in two thousand and eleven. Yeah, uh, it right. seems to have eaten the world. So. So the great question then, which of course you address in your book, is to quote you again, can we tame the beast? Is the monster out of its cage? What are we going to do to tame this thing? Well, we think we can. I think if we didn't feel that we all had agency over this and there were options, if we if we you know seize the moment and act wisely, I don't think we would have written the, the book, Andrew. We would have just, you know, sat on the sidelines like a lot of people and Kind of bitched and moaned and said it was back, better back in the day. Um, no, we want to reform. We want to offer suggestions and solutions for reform, so we don't get to a position that we write about in the last chapter of the book, where we debate: you know, shouldn't we just turn this stuff off? I mean, that's the sort of un, unspoken yeah, question. Yeah, and that's you know that's that's completely unreasonable. I yeah, mean, yeah, no, exactly. in, uh, policy terms and in choice nobody really apart from a few hardcore anti-tech <laughs> luddite types of what want to turn the thing off one of the things i like about the book ben is that you begin with a historical analogy you compare what's happening today with the mid-19th century you say 1848 give or take a few years and you suggest that we're going through another really profound structural and you use this word existential change when it comes to politics, technology, economic ideas, and fiscal policy. Why is today like the middle of the 19th century? Well, because the underlying means of production, the underlying tools that we use to create wealth and from which power stems are changing so radically, so fundamentally. And, and that moment of dislocation, you know, this no, no, notion of an industrial revolution, Again, through history, we can see exactly what that wrought, what that created. It changed geopolitics, it changed society, it changed the whole notion of us as human beings. And we are kind of going through that again. We, we talk about this uh, you know, potential transition we can see ahead from the G7, as we sort of understand it today, into the D7. Uh, you know, the G7 sort of reflects power in 1946. If you were doing a zero-based budgeting exercise today to create the G7 today, the D7 today, you know, no disrespect, would, but would Canada be in it? Would France be in it? But uh, probably not. Would China be in it? Yes. Would India probably be in it? Yes. Would the Republic of Facebook be in it? 
probably left. Yes. So, wow. You know, so, well, that... no. so, so we're going to replace we're going to replace France with the Republic of Facebook. Uh, I will enjoy yeah. telling my my French friends that that will that will cheer them up. Um, you also, um, and, and I'm curious to go back to this 19th century analogy, mid 19th century analogy, because of course today, in the early part of the 21st century, in the, the consequences of the industrial world are still all around us. If you were to go back to the middle of the 19th century, do you think we screwed up the industrial revolution? If you could, if you could wind the clock back, what would you have changed about how we regulated or didn't regulate the industrial revolution? I think the 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 statement that we would make is that really what we're talking when about when you say we Ben is that you and your co-author yeah, Paul yeah, Roaming or is that you yeah. and your think tank? No, this is the the sort of argument of the book is that uh, what we're really talking about is wanting to try and engineer the first industrial evolution. You know, we're trying to prevent the notion of the revolution happening because. Um, in revolutions, lots of people, you know, good people get mixed up and uh, can't be distinguished from the baddies. And we don't want that to happen. So we we want to manage this phase of right. accelerating. So you're suggesting you want to avoid, uh, you're talking about mid-19th century, you want to avoid the Paris Commune, you want to avoid uh, October 1917, you want to avoid Mao Zedong. Don't you? Well... I rather like the, the Russian Revolution, but I wasn't there, unfortunately. Um, one, of, one, of, one of the kind of literary frameworks I always have in my mind, Andrew, is, is um, sounds maybe silly, but it's Dr. Zhivago. I mean, that's a book where a, a good bourgeois person, not an oxymoron, gets you know mixed up in a in a, a wave in which the radicals can't distinguish him from the the elites that he despises. And his life mm. is blown up in the process of that. And I think that's kind of potentially what happens going forward. If we don't reform, if we don't try and tame this monster, then people of goodwill, people who love technology, people who know its potential and its power and its promise and its ability to do good things, we kind of get mixed up on, uh, with, with the people who are perhaps less benign and more mm. malign. And again, that's what we're trying to do in, in well, talking West about tuning the monster. We're still waiting for our Dr. Shivago of the um, of, of the digital age. So, any Boris Pasternak's out there, get writing about what Silicon Valley great, is doing in the world. There's a great there's a great novel to be written about what's going on at the moment, and many I great think, novels. They still yeah. haven't been written. They um, haven't been I was written, particularly yeah. curious, Ben, on your in this comparison between 1848 and today. Uh, you talked about value creation. And in, in the middle of the 19th century, you talked about the Californian gold rush. And today you talk about the global code rush. Why is today's world in some ways like the middle of the 19th century when it came to the gold rush in California? I even have a, a nice image of the Californian gold rush here to remind us of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who rushed to California to dig up the gold, most of yeah. whom either died or became very impoverished because of it. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, it, I mean, the, the simple analogy, isn't it? We've kind of discovered a new resource and uh, people are going out into the hills, the wilds of California, the wilds of, you know, all over the place to now mine that resource, refine that resource, extract value from that resource. You know, data is the new oil, this phrase that people use. 
So yeah, we've, we've in the last 25 years, uh, tech companies have been the most successful companies, you know, certainly in that 25 years, but, but you know, potentially of all time. So that, that notion of a code rush, people rushing into technology, every company now is a technology company. That's another phrase you hear bandied around. I mean, it's very real. Uh, and it's undeniable, as you said earlier on, in some of the headlines you showed that companies like Amazon are now as powerful as governments, more powerful than governments, full of, uh, as you say, more smarter people, uh, more motivated people. And so, again, that sort of notion of incredible disruption, uh, that parallel with 1848, uh, again, this, these are the stakes in play. I mean, these are the, the stakes are this big. That's what we're kind of grappling with. We're, we're in the midst of history right now. Which is why you're on the show, Ben. Now, your, your day <laughs> job, in addition to your co-authorship of Monster, is that you are uh, the managing director of the Center for the Future of Work, which is a, a cognizant um, organization uh, imagining the future of work. How central is the future of work itself to this nightmarish world that you're warning us to avoid, to steer clear of? Well, you know, the future of work has come a lot closer for a lot of people in the last year, hasn't it? Um, you know, people like you and I have been working from home remotely for many, many years, and we've kind of been living an online existence for many, for many years. It feels very normal to us. But the rest of the world, a lot of the rest of the world sort of caught up in the, in the last year. And, and a lot of those people are going through that kind of recalibration of what their work looks like, what their life looks like. And you know, certainly there's going to be an element of kind of going back to the old model. But at the same time, I don't think the, the Internet genie, the virtual kind of Zoom world genie is going back into the bottle fully. So, yeah, we're all trying to come up with a new accommodation uh, where technology is central to the work ahead of us. And um, again, that's what we try and do at the Center for the Future of Work, help you know, people who are trying to optimize for that new world, you know, employers, but also employees, think about what that new world of work looks like and how, uh, you know, how they can get to the finish line, whatever, whatever finish line they're trying to get to. What does the, uh, the future of work look like? You just came out, your, your center came out with a, a really interesting white paper 21 places of the future. So you're imagining the future. Uh, we had Roya Hakekian, the um, Iranian immigrant to America on the show who wrote A Beginner's Guide to America. She always describes now is the American future and suggests that the West is always the future. The West is always now. But it seems in, in your 21 places of the future, that California and even Silicon Valley isn't central to the future of work. Is that fair? Well, um, one of the places of the future is Sacramento, uh, which is kind of becoming the overspill. Yeah, I'm going like. to make a really snubbish joke here, Ben, because I'm <laughs> in the Bay Area. Sacramento well, is exactly, not California. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, for people who... But, but, yeah, but, okay, so you've got Sacramento, but the rest of these 21 places of the future, Lagos, Nairobi, uh, Kochi, Da Nang, Shenzhen, Songdo, uh, the future has shifted eastward. We, yesterday we had someone on the show who was a historian writing about Francis Drake and his eastward attempt to make sense of the world. The world is shifting east again, 500 yeah. years after Drake. Yeah, and uh, and there's a new wave of explorers. Uh, one of the places of the future is space. 
you know, Bezos and Musk are like the, the kings and queens of 16th century Europe. They're bankrolling Christopher Columbus to go off and, and find new places that turn into New York and Hong Kong and Sydney. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of change. And again, what we're trying to call out is that technology uh, is central to creating jobs of the future, and often jobs of the future happen in unlikely right. places. So what are the jobs of the future, um, uh, uh, Ben? Uh, we all know what the, the jobs of the past were, jobs in factories. We know, as, I, as we let off the show, the jobs of the future are perhaps driving Uber cars, although who knows how long humans will, will sit in cars before they become self-driving. What are the jobs of the future and how do we need to protect them from the monsters of tech, of big tech? <laughs> yeah. Now, we've written four reports now, uh, continuing to write reports called Jobs of the Future. Uh, so we've imagined almost 100 new jobs and we've written them in the form of job descriptions. So it's not theoretical. It's something that a hiring manager would, would hire for. And they range from very, very technical jobs. I mean, uh, there are jobs in the quantum field, quantum computing field that are emerging. There are jobs in the space exploration area, very technical jobs. But we don't believe that all jobs in the future are technical jobs. To imagine that everybody has to be a coder in the future is probably unrealistic. All jobs will probably use technology, but you know, there will be a lot of users of that technology. One very simple kind of new job uh, that we proposed, recognizing again, and the pandemic has just kind of highlighted this even more, is this sort of pandemic of loneliness and mm. isolation that a lot of people are feeling is what we call a walker-talker, which going back to your Uber um, headline there is kind of leveraging a demand supply platform like Uber. So in your local neighborhood, you could go and walk with a senior and talk with a senior. Mm walk the dog with them to, to monetize that bit of time you've got as a student or a housewife or a, you know, a, a person that's got a Saturday morning they want to monetize. That's a way of using a kind of technology to create a new job that we haven't really had before. Um, we actually, I've got, I'm, I'm thrilled, I've got Sherry Turkle coming on the show tomorrow to talk yeah. about her new autobiography. Uh, yeah. She, of course, is one of the, the pioneers of, of, reintroducing humanity into into artificial intelligence yeah. uh, before we get on to your fixes um your, your, you have some very concrete fixes in the book ben uh, a, a list of, of quite controversial issues I, i'm curious though just to follow up a little bit on this idea of work you are as i said your day job is as a thinker about the future of work we've thought about it a lot on this show um we had, for example, Sarah Horowitz, the longtime labor organizer, on with her new book, Mutualism. Can, in the future of work, can we reintroduce a, a 21st century um, uh, cooperative movement between workers? Is that important in your view? Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a crucial element of this. Yeah, I mean, without getting political, and we are apolitical. Well, I, I want you to be political. But... <laughs> we don't express political opinions in the book or in our work. But, you know, it's pretty clear, again, to any you know thinking person, that the, the balance, if you like, between capital and labor has, you know, wild, wildly gone out of whack in the last 40, 50 years. I mean, again, that's, that's a no-brainer to say that. And, and you can see in the political sphere the, the consequences of that. So we do need, again, to create a new accommodation, get more in, into some sort of balance 
which ultimately will be good for us all. So yeah, I think um, reassessing the social contract for the social network age is, is critical work that many, many people have got to be involved in. We've all got to be involved in, in that. And that's absolutely a central theme through the recommendations in the book. You see, Ben, you are political, even if you won't acknowledge it. <laughs> even think tank guys like you are political. Um, we also had Sarah Jaffe on the on the show, another excellent book, Work, Work Won't Love You Back. Do we need to reintroduce the idea of love, emotion into the workplace? Was that the thing that got lost in the Industrial Revolution that perhaps digital has the opportunity to reintroduce? Yes, no, it's a, it's a great uh, great question, and it, it, it is a very interesting book. Um, no, I mean, I get this question a lot, Andrew, that, you know, what are the skills of the future? What should my kid be studying? And, and the simple truth, in a way, is that a lot of the skills of the future are very transitory ones, very fast-changing ones, very perishable ones, and ultimately what's going to protect you as an individual, we think, is not so much your skills, but your attitudes, you know, your foundational attitudes as a person. And they are, as you quite rightly point out, much more kind of those eternal human skills, compassion, love, curiosity, kindness, uh, being the human English version. English machines. Of... Can we, we can't teach machines that, can we? No, of course. Um you know, really the, the future of work for most people is to not be a bad robot. A lot of human work is, in essence, humans impersonating robots. Now the robots are showing up. So don't be a bad robot, but be a good human being. I mean, one of the kind of, you know, sort of uh, examples I always give in the future, if you're going to go to a lawyer, a $1,000 an hour lawyer, and you know that, that that work is really being done by the AI bot, then that lawyer better give you a bloody good meeting. You know, they better, better have yeah, a, um, a good uh, I actually, uh, uh, I want to get, I don't know, I think this might be tough, but I want to get uh, Kishua Ishiguro on the show. He has a new book out, the, the British yeah. novelist, uh, Clara yeah. and the Sun, which is all about yeah. this. So this okay. stuff is for real. So, yeah. Ben, you've been very patient with me. Let's get to your... Your, 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 your tactics for recaging the monster. Uh, we can't yeah. get into all of them. You have 10 tactics. Um, the first, uh, and, and you call them tactics, so I use that word carefully. You say establish a federal technology administration, FTA. Some people might say, well, don't we have enough government organizations already? We've got the FCC, the FTC. Why do we need uh, uh, an FTA? Because if you look at the charters of those agencies, they don't talk about anything that we're talking about now. They've got no real brief to, to grapple with the sorts of issues that we're discussing now. We think there's a need to have a modern agency, a super agency sits above those. Is that we're a contradiction in, in terms in America, in Washington, D.C., a modern agency? Aren't all agencies, <laughs> by definition, anti-modern? Well, again, um, we draw a parallel, a historical parallel if you kind of know the story of the development of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. Right. That I actually about, wrote about that in my last book, How to Yeah, Fix exactly. Food. That came about as a result of problems with, you know, supply chains and, 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 and food in that era. And I think the analogy is very simply true now, but we need a, a an agency with a specific charter to go after the, the real issues and, and, to, and to be and to stack that agency with guys like Tim Wu and uh, and, and Lena Khan and, and, and critics great, of technology. 
that's a great positive step well, forward. Will, will, will Eric Schmidt and Mark Zuckerberg be allowed to be represented on this committee too? Because otherwise they're going to become the bad guys and we've just turned the whole thing on its head. Well, and another proposal we have in the book is, if, again, if, you, if you're familiar with the way that nuclear power is managed and regulated, I mean, where we come from, Andrew, the UK Atomic Energy Authority, that's staffed by scientists, uh, technicians, policy people, lawyers, and lay people, ordinary people. And we, we think, again, it takes a village. And one of the problems with tech in the last you know, sort of libertarian 25 years as we've let the tech people just get on with this without any of that kind of village collective management. We think there's a, a need to have something like the UK Atomic Energy Authority. We call it the USDA, the, the US Data Authority, to bring people again together the, the tech people, the entrepreneurs, we don't want to stop that. That's fantastic. But we all recognize, we think, that we've got to have that more um, sort of cross-disciplinarian management of something that's too important to be now left to the tech techies alone. Or the anti-techies. Let's move on to a couple of your other suggestions. You want to repeal Section 230 which we had, uh, I'm sure you know Larry Downs on the show. Larry oh. says that without 230, there'll be no social media. Uh, and you want to establish a social media user license. Yep. Um, are you, and, and, and indeed in another suggestion, uh, you want to make social media illegal for people under 18. Are you essentially trying to make social media illegal? Are you putting it out of business, trying? I don't think so. I mean, think about a car. Do we let a 13-year-old get behind the wheel of a car? Well, no. is that the equivalent? I, I was, you, you, you make that argument in the book, Ben, but that's pretty controversial. You're suggesting that just as we don't let uh, a 13-year-old behind the wheel of a car, we can't allow them on Facebook or Instagram. Imagine telling your, you've got similar age kids to me. Imagine telling your kids that. You know they're going to get on it anyway, whether or not we allow them. I mean, and again, this is a motivation for writing this book, Andrew, and, and making that recommendation, because I've lived through this. You know, your kids, my kids, we've been the, they've been the guinea pigs. We gave them phones when they were 12, 13. We kind of have their lives know, been completely ruined. Are they are they no, killing think, themselves quite literally because we've allowed them to drive these dangerous cars? Have they become alcoholics? I don't think they've been ruined necessarily, but we know what's going on. If you're paying attention, bullying, trolling, body dysmorphia. I think one of the underreported elements that's going on, I don't know whether you're picking up on this, is that there's a, uh, it's, it's leaking out more and more young people saying, I mean, we've been brought up in this, but we're trapped in the matrix. How do we get out of this? If you're familiar with, there's a, a, a pop group the 1975, very popular with young people at the moment, Matt Healy, their singer, songwriter, very interesting guy. He's basically saying that young people want to get out of the matrix. And that he's saying in a way that young people have always rebelled against their parents' tastes, that a lot of young people are going to rebel against social media. Mm. So it sounds I, yeah, I agree. I, it's something I've been, actually, I, I don't want to keep on saying what I've been saying, but I've been yeah. predicting that for years, that ultimately... Yeah. You know, our generation always believed that young people would be lovers of digital, but actually we're back in the 1960s and the rebellion against capitalism and against all the things that go with capitalism is just up the road. 
I think that's very likely. And again, we're not trying to ban social media. We don't want to stop this. We recognize it's it's useful, it's valuable, there's many good elements to it. But the notion that you give a kid, a young kid, this incredibly powerful technology, you don't you know supervise it, you don't oversee it, you let them just get on with it. I think that's naive. I think we've we've been foolish to do that. And it's going to be difficult to put that genie back in the bottle. Well, you're going to outrage the libertarians, Ben, when you say that 12-year-olds aren't allowed on social media. Why should they be allowed to read books? Why should they be allowed into libraries? Well, does a kid going into a library uh, start doing some of the crazy things that young people are doing on social media? I don't think so. I don't think that's a logical argument at all. I think, again, if you think about cars you think about drinking you think about marriage you think about Mm. joining the army you think about voting we're completely comfortable with having an age limit for all of those things why do we suddenly uh want to give this technology that we can see is having negative consequences both for those kids and then as they become adults it sort of bursts out into other aspects of society i think we're suggesting again in the car analogy that kids have training I mean, some of this is kind of beginning to show up in schools. Yeah, that's an interesting. So you would have to pass, a social, just as you have to pass a driving test, although in America it's pretty easy compared yeah. to Europe anyway, they'd have to pass a social media test. Uh, the, 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 the 10th uh, suggestion I also found particularly interesting. Um, you say overall anonymity in for-profit social and media platforms. This is, again, going to outrage libertarians. I actually agree with you on it. Why do you think we need to get rid of anonymity on the Internet, particularly on yeah. social media? Well, we've taken our lead from you a little bit on this, Andrew. We know that you've, you've spoken about this very strongly in the, in the you know, previous years. And we agree with you. I mean, anonymity was important. It was, it was very valuable in the first wave of the, of the Internet, the first kind of 25 years of the information superhighway. But we can see again the downsides of it now. And, and, and is there anything platonically right about maintaining anonymity online? We don't think so. We think again, now that this is so central to every aspect of our, of our life, uh, just as the way that if you go into the public square in, in the physical on, you know, real world, you, you basically have to own what you say. We think the same is true now in the IRL. We, we, uh, in, in, the, in the online experience. We think it's time for people to own what they say and not hide and not be able to troll and, and spread nonsense and disinformation and all this kind of rubbish, which is taking us down algorithmically curated rabbit holes, which are going to be really, really destructive the more we allow this just to go on in a completely unmanaged Wild West model. Well, it is a really tough letter from a tech insider not a not a polemicist. This is from a, a traditional, uh, I, I guess, a, a high end tech consultant from a large, very reputable consultancy by Paul Rohrig and, and Ben uh, Pring. Monster, a tough love letter on taming the machines that rule our jobs, lives, and future. An essential read, extremely controversial, healthfully controversial, and it actually cheers me up because clearly this stuff now is becoming mainstream. Uh, ben, you're in your office somewhere south of Boston in these strange times. In addition to your book, what should people be reading while they're still stuck at home waiting for the vaccine? Yeah, well, you can see there's quite a, uh, quite a few books out there, Andrew, for people to read. I mean, this is one that I picked out. I know that you've mm. uh, 
you've interviewed Shuzana, and this is a very yeah, Shoshana, she's been on the show, a wonderful interview and a wonderful writer. What's so? What's the big deal about the age of surveillance capitalism, Ben? I think um, what this did to me, I read this about 18 months ago, uh, what this did to me was really coalesce a lot of the anxiety concerns that you know I've been having privately and with my, my co-author. And I think that, to me, the most impactful element of it, and you'll remember this, Andrew, and anybody who who has read it probably will remember it, is the is that again the historical kind of analogy she draws between the conquistadores showing up in South America and in essence monetizing something that the indigenous people didn't understand had had any value land to them didn't have any value and before they realized that it had value the Europeans had you know sewn up all the land rights and her analogy is that that's what's happened with our data our data has been, uh, in essence, um, uh, owned, is owned by uh, by tech companies before most people, and I think this is still true today, before most people fully really understand what's going on, what the new rules of the game are. And, and when I read that, it was a kind of light bulb moment for me because I think that's, that's true, and I think that's very, very impactful, and it's very, very central to us in this next chapter of taming this monster of kind of trying to understand that and how do we deal with that? Yeah, it's fascinating. And I need to get you back on the show to talk about the land issue. As I said, we had a show yesterday about Drake. And uh, when Drake sailed around the world, um, he was looking for treasure. He wasn't looking for land. And he could have owned all of California and he chose yeah. not to. So I yeah. think you're absolutely right. And we're in this new transitional moment where something of completely different value is being monetized, as you say, made fortunes by a certain small group of people, and everybody else needs to catch up. So Ben Pring, the author of Monster, great book, great interview. Come back on the show. We'll talk more about 1848, 1948, <laughs> and 2148. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks, Andrew. Great talking to you.